Hello, and welcome to Discussions with DPIC. I'm DPIC Managing Director Ann Holsinger. In this episode, I'll be speaking with James Ridding, who represented Texas death row prisoner Larry Swearingen. Mr. Swearingen was executed on August 21st, 2019, despite serious problems with virtually every piece of forensic evidence in his case. This case illustrates systemic problems with the reliability of forensic science and the difficulty of presenting new evidence on appeal, even when a prisoner may be innocent. Mr. Ridding, thank you for joining us today. Thank you. Mr. Swearingen's case involved a litany of bad forensic science, including misleading testimony about multiple pieces of evidence and a disputed timeline regarding the date of the victim's death. You've described the prosecution's case against Mr. Swearingen as forensic quackery. Could you give us a short overview of what was wrong with the prosecution's evidence? The main thing that was wrong with it was that they had what they called a smoking gun. The smoking gun was a pantyhose ligature that was found around the neck of the victim. It was found under very strange circumstances. The body appeared in the woods 22 days after Mr. Swearingen was incarcerated. In between the time he was incarcerated and the body was found, they searched his trailer twice and did not find anything that was connected with the ligature. After the ligature shows up, they then go back to the uh, trailer, and lo and behold, they came up with another piece of pantyhose from which they said the ligature was cut. After that, they take it to DPS lab, and this is where the quackery begins. And the quackery may be too strong a term, well, just because it suggests that this is unusual, that we have an analyst that is not qualified in the usual sense. But that's not true. She had the qualifications such as they were. The person that did the analysis was not a buffoon. She was not trying to to fool anybody, but she was following protocols that cannot be used in anything that's considered a scientific inquiry. What she did was she received the, the both pieces of the pantyhose. She knew where they came from. She knew what the objective was, which was to match them up. She knew who wanted to who wanted those uh, uh, pieces of pantyhose matched up, and why. There was no distance between her and the and law enforcement, none whatsoever. And she continued in close communications with them, was given their theories of the case throughout. But the very basic scientific flaw in her analysis was that she compared both on the same template. She put both the, the ligature and the pantyhose on a piece of glass, single piece of glass, to compare them. Now, when she did this for the first time, she came to the conclusion that there was no physical match. From then on, there was an attempt to match the two without taking any of the basic precautions to make sure that you're not biased. And these could easily have been conceived and put into place. She could have prepared both the pantyhose and the ligature independently on different templates. They could have had different analysts uh, prepare both before they compared them. But instead, they put them on both pieces on a single template, on a single glass slide, and then on a single glass tube and pushed and pulled until they made them match. It was literally manufactured evidence. And this, unfortunately, is not unusual. It is a customary procedure when people are making tear mark comparisons. So it goes 
much further than Mr. Swearingen's case. In fact, all the experts I talked with, when I even made the suggestion uh, that the analyst who testified at trial should have taken these measures, they had not conceived of them before in their own practice. They had not implemented them before in their own when dealing with their cases. And they suggested that it, that, that uh, there were other other methods that they had to follow, none of which prevent bias, uh, none of which prevent false matches, as in this case. Wow. <laughs> um, there was also some dispute about the time of the victim's death. Could you explain some of that, too? This has to do both with flawed forensic evidence and the inability of the courts to recognize legitimate conclusions and the scope of those conclusions when they're made by actual scientists who look at a wide variety of evidence. In this case, the victim disappears on December 8th. Melissa Trotter was her name. Her body is recovered from the Sam Houston National Forest, where it was found just lying on the ground. It wasn't wasn't covered with detritus. It wasn't uh, hidden. It wasn't buried. It was just on top of the ground. And it was found on January 2nd, 1999. That's 25 days after she disappeared. Larry, Larry Swearingen, was picked up on suspicion of this murder on December 11th, 22 days before the body is found. And the Joy Carter, the former medical examiner of Harris County, testified at trial that she believes the post-mortem interval was 25 days. She, she hedged that just slightly. She said 25 days or so, but she put it right on the period of time that Larry Swearingen was out of prison between, the, between December 8th and December 11th. That was her PMI, and she had no basis for making this presumption or making this conclusion. She testified at an evidentiary hearing that she did not have climate data. She testified at the evidentiary hearing, and this is several years after the trial, that she did not have uh, familiarity with the environment in which the body was found. So her trial testimony, just for those reasons, was illegitimate but was accepted and has been accepted by the court. Meanwhile, I've, I obtained the opinions of no less than five medical examiners, chief medical examiners, uh, with international reputations, all of whom worked for nothing. They refused to take money in this case. And they came to the conclusion that the body of Melissa Trotter was thrown in the woods no more than 10 days or so before the body was found, which means Mr. Swearingen was in jail when that body was left in the Sam Houston National Forest. And they looked at a variety of evidence. They looked at the autopsy report. There was photographs of the spleen, of the heart. They, we recovered a, a slide in the medical examiner's office at the Harris County Medical Examiner's Office, which had tissue preserved, heart tissue, some lung tissue, a, 
And then within that, there was venous tissue, nerve tissue, some fatty tissue. All of it looked like it had been biopsied. That is, taken from someone that was alive, except for the presence of some uh, bacteria that had, perf- that had started to profuse. But all the subcellular structures were intact. So that leads to the conclusion that the body had not been exposed to the conditions that were found in the Sam Houston National Forest for as long as the state said, because all those subcellular uh, structures start decompose. That is, decompose, decomposition is a microscopic phenomena with macroscopic features. You see it. You see it. They also looked at the gross anatomy and came to the same conclusion. Everything fit with a PMI much shorter than the 25 to 22 days that was testified to at trial. Yet they were all ignored by the court. And then another aspect of the case was they used cell phone uh, testimony to try to track Mr. Swanson. They claimed that they could do so with cell phone evidence. And they introduced what is called a drive test map, which has splotches on it, uh, very discreet colored splotches on it, all fits together like a puzzle. And uh, they claimed that these were the areas that various antennas on the cell towers covered. They look like on the map, probably between, oh, maybe 10 square miles or so, a couple miles, maybe two, three, three miles in width, three miles in depth, and no more than that. When a cell phone tower broadcasts a beam, each one of it, all three of its antennas, because they usually have it, three antennas, that covers a radius, an area with a radius of 21 miles. That gives you thousands <laughs> of square miles of coverage. So you cannot track people using the method that they they said they could. But that, too, was accepted by the courts. Their, I mean, their testimony at trial, which was we can show where he was at certain times based on his phone calls, and we can track him going to and from distinct geographical locations, none of which is true. So do you think that that kind of bad analysis is the source of most of the flawed forensics in this case? Or do you think other factors were at play, like poor training of the technicians or intentional misconduct or or other factors? Well, when it comes to things like the pantyhose matching, uh, that has to do with not poor training of the technician uh, as a specific example, like I said. But with the standards that are generally used in the forensic professions, they apparently do not or did not at the time come in with a basic background in scientific methods, what you need to do to blind yourself to make sure that you are not uh, uh, biased, that you're not confirming a foregone conclusion that you should not have be considering um, when you're doing the test and preparing the materials. Uh, and that's the big problem. Then the other problem has to do with, I believe, both the training of the attorneys and the judges, uh, which is very much antiquated. Uh, the legal profession's basic education is not up to par. Uh, you can come into law school with uh, a degree in comparative literature, with uh, political science. Uh, you don't get any scientific training while you are in law school. And yet this is a major part of life that you have to have some fluency with if you're going to be 
on the bench making decisions nowadays. Uh, you have to know something about science. It's much more important, actually, than knowing 18th century literature, as valuable as that knowledge may be in other circumstances. Lawyers and judges, who all generally all are lawyers, do not have a basic training in the sciences or in necessary areas of uh, quantitative analysis, you know, statistics. They're not they don't have a basic education in those in those areas. So that kind of flawed methodology that you described was found in an FBI investigation of hundreds of cases. They discovered that forensic experts had exaggerated the conclusions that could be drawn from the forensic evidence. And there has been widespread criticism of a lot of fields of forensic analysis And yet that type of evidence continues to be used and trusted in criminal cases, even in death penalty cases. Do you think that the lack of training is the reason, or are there other reasons why it persists? Well, part of it has to do with the pressures that are on the prosecutors and on the state to get convictions and get the death penalty in these cases. In many ways, it's the same pressures that that people say, for example, uh, they have serious health problems and the traditional medicine is not working, your allopathic medicine, going to the doctor, getting the test done, and so they turn to something else, and they want it to work. They just want it to work, So they ignore, and uh, they ignore uh, evidence to the contrary, and they believe that these you know, home cures may be helping. They don't look at things rigorously. Here, you want to make sure that justice is done. You want to convict, find someone who killed the victim and uh, punish them severely. That's the, that is the motivation. And so that is in conflict with sort of objective, cool analysis of the scientific evidence. It's uh, quite, quite simple in that regard. But then still, education is a serious problem. I mean, take ballistics. Ballistics is just, it's almost mind-boggling that that is still allowed in the courtroom, ballistic evidence. The theory behind that is that each gun barrel is distinct, (laughs) right, and makes distinct marks on bullets, and that's been allowed for years. And this just shows how dismal, I think, the either the analytic resources or the education of the bench and bar has been in that you can go to a drugstore and see thousands of nuts and bolts all milled exactly alike. Why can't you do that with a gun barrel? Well, you can, right? There should be thousands of identical gun barrels if they're using the same lathe made to the same specs. But that, even though that basic uh, analogical reasoning hasn't been, uh, was, has been ignored and was ignored for years, and people got convicted on the testimony of, uh, basically, they were cops who took a few extra classes who said they could tell from the marks on the bullet that it had to come from the gun that the defendant was wielding. So you have all of this flawed evidence, and yet in the days leading up to Mr. Swearingen's execution, three courts, including the U.S. Supreme Court, rejected his requests for a stay of execution. How did those courts dismiss such compelling evidence of innocence? It has to do with the law. Uh, This is... And it has to do with the main law that is leads to these unjust results is a federal law. Uh, it's the Anti-Terrorism and 
Effective Death Penalty Act, uh, which does not allow you to introduce evidence after you file your initial petition and have that ruled on, except under the most extreme circumstances. Uh, the standards are that you have to show by clear and convincing evidence that your client is innocent, and you have to show that the evidence you're presenting demonstrates he is clearly and convincingly innocent, could not have been discovered beforehand. That leads to severe distortions, I believe, in the judicial system, in the way that post-conviction proceedings go. Because the whole objective after that is not to get clarity about whether someone's innocent or not. It's to muddy up the works. That's what the prosecution's job is in post-conviction. To show, to try to to raise, uh, you know, some doubt to show, to show that it's, it's well, it's it it may be, uh, you know, probative evidence. It may be uh, solid evidence, but hey, it's not clear and convincing. In the end, it turns out to be a very subjective standard uh, that is almost impossible to meet. And it, in the meantime, it looks like oh, we've given you all this process, all these chances. It's been a fair system when it is absolutely not. Your client is one of many people who've been executed despite serious doubts about their guilt because of such a system. We've found at least 10 cases in Texas alone. For instance, Cameron Todd Willingham, who was executed based on junk arson science. Carlos DeLuna, whose prosecutors knew that another man, also named Carlos, who looked just like DeLuna, was the real killer. Robert Pruitt, who was executed even though forensic testing of the knife used to kill a prison guard, found DNA that didn't belong to either him or the victim. So what is going on in Texas, and how can the judicial process be changed to prevent more executions like these? Well, let me start with making a plug for Texas in that the legislature has passed several laws that are cutting edge, leading the, the nation uh, in the protections that they provide for uh, uh, death sentence clients. You, there is a junk science writ. If you come up with new scientific evidence, or even if an expert changes their opinion, you can get back into state court. Well, that's not much better than the federal system uh, in that regard. The federal system could take a lesson from the Texas legislature. Uh, you can, uh, in Texas, due to a case called Ex Parte Chabot, uh, raise a claim, a due process claim, because you were convicted by false testimony, even if the prosecutor didn't know it was false. That's not the case in the federal system. Uh, the federal system, again, should could take a, chain, a lesson from the Texas uh, courts in this situation. But the larger question of why there's so many death penalties in Texas, and why there's so much resistance by the prosecution to admitting that, oh, at least we need a new trial. We know, and people should know that. We're not, the, the big reward is not freedom and meals in the public square for the rest of your life. No, it's just a new trial. But they resist that mightily, uh, despite this type of evidence. And I just think it's misguided. I think it's a violation of their ethical duty. Uh, how to change that? That's going to take a, a change sort of in 
the culture of Texas, which in which the death penalty is used to used as a means to get elected, in which harsh punishments are valued highly and they become a political plus for you. If you go, you know, the more cruel you're going to be, uh, the the better. And I think that is changing. A lot of it's changing because the big counties that used to fill up the death roads, like Harris County, Dallas County, Bear County, and some of the other large counties with major urban areas, are now Democratic, not just the city itself, but the counties. So you think that the election of reform prosecutors will help this kind of problem? Well, it already has. I mean, it already has in Dallas County. Uh, when uh, I believe it was Mr. Washington was elected, he's no longer the DA there, uh, and it has in Harris County with the election of Kim Og. So these, uh, this is demonstrable. Pace of new convictions for capital crimes has slowed down dramatically in Texas. And I should say, uh, Texas gets in the hot seat uh, because of the sheer volume. But when you look at other states, there's a serious problem too: Nevada, Florida. Virginia, and in fact, in some of these cases, give relative to population, uh, the death, the the numbers of death penalties, the number of executions are, are right up there with uh, the state of Texas. So it shouldn't be considered an outlier so much. I mean, it is a big the problem. Is it's a huge state with nearly thirty million people and a huge death row. Part of how these wrongful convictions occur is that juries may not understand the kinds of evidence that are presented to them. So if you could speak frankly with someone who was about to serve on a capital jury, what would you tell them about how to approach forensic evidence? Well, if I if I were making a closing argument, that's what attorneys do, is what you're asking. What would your closing argument be? Well, first, you have to have something to bring to the table. You need to have uh, your own expert who has carefully looked at the evidence and come to their conclusions. And the other thing is, before it gets to the jury, you should have done whatever you could to make sure that at least it satisfies what are called Daubert criteria, that it's reliable, relevant evidence, that it is, that it, it, it does pass scientific muster, that it's, you know, it's te- that it's testable that the conclusions aren't overstated, and so forth. That work really needs to be done before you get to the jury, because once you get there, with the state's expert already having testified, the jury's not going to think that Mr. Attorney knows more than the person with the credentials that has been put on the stand. So, you know, it is a a situation where... Talking to the jury is about junk science is a step too late. It'd be great if we had a if you know scientific literacy increases with increased edu- you know in, in this country. That's but something needs to be done before that corner is turned. Is there anything else that you would like to tell our listeners about this case or about the problem of innocence in death penalty cases in general? Well, I would like to say something to the listeners, not about death penalty cases, but about all the cases in which people are serving life sentences and sentences of, you know, 40 years, 50 years, which is tantamount to a life sentence. There are thousands and thousands of those people. 
and their cases aren't reviewed. They are convicted by junk science. They are convicted by false scientific testimony, exaggerated scientific testimony. But they don't, their cases aren't reviewed, except in the rarest of circumstances, because only descendant clients are allowed an attorney and allowed resources in habeas corpus. So that should be kept in mind, that this isn't a, a, a discrete problem having to do with people who are on death row. This is a huge problem having to do with people that are wasting away in our prison system. Thank you. That's absolutely an excellent point. You know, here at DPIC, we're so focused on death penalty cases that I think sometimes we can overlook how little review other cases get relative to capital cases. Well, you're welcome. And thank you for uh, having me on. We're, we're glad to have you. and We appreciate you joining us today. For our listeners... To learn more about the death penalty, please visit the DPIC website at deathpenaltyinfo.org. We'll include a link to more information about Larry Swearingen in, in this episode's description. And to make sure you never miss an episode of Discussions with DPIC, please subscribe on your podcast app of choice.